UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Good evening. Unique episode tonight, and here's why. My name is Curry Hicksage. I will be joined tonight by a guest from Dog Nation, which is a Atlanta Journal-Constitution-owned site covering exclusively University of Georgia athletics. So we'll get to that interview in a moment. We'll also do a mailbag segment. But my increasingly very sporadic co-host Andrew Callagy, a.k.a. A. Callagy for longtime listeners in Boston, is not with us this evening. And for the first time in program history, my stalwart producer, the Bennett Carroll in our nation's capital, is not with us. So how am I recording the show without him, you ask? Well, a few ways. I am experimenting with a new recorder that I bought with your generous contribution some time ago. Unsure if that will work. And by the way, I have a tutorial in it with an expert this coming weekend. But in the absence of that, my additional backup plan is I'm actually just recording into one of my cell phones. And... uh, Recording on the other. Um, so Bennett, basically, we were like thinking about doing a show. We were both getting really tired. We were going to call it and not do a show. And we had sought out several guests. And then at the last minute, this Georgia um, beat reporter, who's pretty prominent in the uh, sort of SEC Twitter sphere. And so the point is, um, I recorded it all on my own. I'm going to send it over to Bennett, and he'll probably patch it together and post it when I'm not sure. But for the first time, he's not here. So there's not going to be that dynamic rapport you've gotten so accustomed to if you're a longtime listener and friend of the pod. So I apologize in advance for that, but I think you'll enjoy the interview. It's a fun one. But before we get into it, let's talk about what's been going on. Last episode we recorded was, of course, uh, I think a week ago, week and maybe maybe a little less, uh, with Mike UMA from uh, founder and proprietor of UMassHoops.com, the legendary message board that uh, spawned so much of what we now see on UMass Twitter and kind of around the UMass fan world. Um, but in the meantime... We had a game against Fairleigh Dickinson. It was something of a disaster, despite the final result, which was a win. It was um, a disaster for all the reasons that Coach McCall alluded to in his post-game interview, which was, as always, outstanding. He is as good of a diagnostician. Is that a word? To a diagnostician, like a like a doctor who diagnoses, is that is that is that a word? I'm not sure. 
But he is as good a diagnostician uh, as any coach I've ever really seen at UMass. Uh, candid, um, perceptive, just gets right to the problem right away. But as I mentioned in a lengthy Twitter rant last week after that game, he's also got to fix the problem now. And the problem, as it has been all year and as we've harped on again and again on this program and again and again on Twitter and again and again on message boards and again and again wherever UMass fans gather is consistency. It's consistency mostly of effort. The effort sucked. Uh, we were probably lucky to get out of there with a win. In many ways, this year, some of those losses I thought that we've had, we probably could have won. This was a game where I think we probably should have lost. Um, hung on at the very end after taking like a three-point lead, and then it was cut to one. And you know, Randall West missed a few couple free throws late, although he did have that big rebound. 85-84 final. McCall was apoplectic. I was pretty apoplectic. It's now been six days. The guys have gone home. They've returned to campus. I'm feeling okay. It's out of my system. I actually rewatched the first 10 or 12 minutes because I didn't get to watch it because it was a 3.30 p.m. start, which is fucking absurd and should have never happened, but that's another story for another time. Where are we now? Well, we're 7-5. and five. In many ways, 8-5 and five was kind of like what we were expecting in the non-conference. 8-5, and 9-4, 7-6 would be disappointing scale, so we're, we're around where we were expecting. The way in which we got there was perhaps not the way we were expecting. I don't think we expected Providence win. We certainly did not expect a Howard loss. These are all things that the weekly listeners of this program know. Georgia, this weekend, Sunday, truly a wonderful measuring stick opportunity not only for this iteration of the UMass basketball team, but for this program in general. Georgia's 7-4, first-year coach Tom Crean, formerly of Indiana. They're big and long, and their front line is formidable. But their guard play is a little bit suspect, and they are, as our guest will will inform us, uh, vulnerable to, to, to... Pressing teams, which I expect us to do more of with DeJiri Baptiste now finally there. And uh, good three-point shooting teams, which we can be when Curtis Cobb, uh, Luan Pipkins, and and Carl Pierre are, are, are making their shots. We've talked about it at length on the show. When those three shoot, you know, even 40 or 45 percent, we win. 50% 50% for sure. When they don't, we often don't. So this is going to be about who imposes their tempo, who imposes their will. Uh, because it is on the road, but I think UMass has in many ways played better on the road this year. Lost by two at Temple in a game they probably should have won. One at Providence. Played well in Vegas. So it's a great test. It's also a test to see what we've gotten out of our system over the holiday break. It is a real opportunity to see just what this non-conference slate amounts to or, or will have amounted to sort of in total. Because, you know, if you get this win, I think 
there's a real optimism entering the, the, the conference season. Eight and five, some big wins, some setbacks, some ugly wins. But, you know, we're where we need to be for a group that's finally getting the shit together. A bad loss here, and it's like maybe we're just an inconsistent, not very good basketball team. So the question is, does this one game determine a lot for the year? And I I tend to say no to these things. I think this one kind of does. Yes, you can lose in respectable fashion or sort of get worked by SEC officials and I'll still be, um, I don't want to say I'll be encouraged, but I won't be discouraged. But a bad loss, and I suspect all of the lingering anxiety that we've been feeling as a fan base will just sort of begin to bubble over. And then you're kind of one or two bad losses in the early part of conference play from existential doubt questions creeping in, and that's not good. For a program, for a fan base, for Twitter sphere, it's just no bueno for anyone. So what has to happen for UMass to win this game and get its shit together? We've said the guards have to score, we have to defend well, we have to be consistent, but we also need to make sure everybody is back and playing. Uh, Curtis Cobb and Cy Chapman both uh, unceremoniously benched, held from the lineup for the entirety of the I think they were in street clothes actually for the for the FDU game. Sounds like just a, a team um, sort of a basic team rules back. I'm not terribly concerned. I do want to emphasize it's from afar it sounds as if these are the sorts of things that McCall is going to do because he's still trying to build the culture here. And I, for one, respect and appreciate that. It's not easy um, to kind of hold true to, to what your ideal is for what a basketball team should look like and act like. But to, to get those points across, sometimes you gotta you got to be stern. That being said, um, you also hope that... <coughs> excuse me. These guys and everybody else in the roster kind of has the light bulb go off and just keeps their shit together. Yes, there's going to be off nights. I think we can all accept that. But you want to rattle off four, five, six, seven consecutive solid efforts. You don't need to rattle off four, five, six, seven consecutive wins right now. You just need to rattle off four, five, six consecutive solid efforts. They did that in games five through eight this year, and then that Holy Cross game, it unraveled again. Uh, likewise, you know, second half of Temple, or first half of Providence, second half of Temple, entirety of FDU. So, excuse me, um, the point is, you just want to make sure uh, that this team is crossing its T's and dotting its I's. It's, It's a bit of a broken record at this point. I don't have a ton more prepared than that. I am really, really excited for DeJerry Baptiste. Not because I expect him to do much offensively, but because we know he's an SEC caliber defender and shot blocker and rebounder already, and we know he can run the floor. And we know that's something we desperately need in terms of an interior um, presence. 
So that is that. We will have a um, we'll have a an eight ten preview coming up after the Georgia game, uh, and we'll talk all about the LaSalle game and, and, the, and the, the sort of start of A-10 play. But a critical game this weekend. Hope you'll be on Twitter, 6 o'clock Sunday. And I uh, hope you enjoy the interview coming up next. Here just to set the scene for the interview, uh, Curry X Sage is talking with Mike Griffith from DogNation.com uh, with the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Hope you enjoy the interview. Go UMass. So, wh- why don't you just first uh, tell us, you know, who you are and wh- who you write for, and how long you've been doing it, and just anything you want to hawk or tell us about you and and uh, and, and how long you've been covering Georgia. Been covering Georgia um, this last season um, since last spring. I've been uh, covering Tennessee before that, covered Michigan State. Done about 25 years in the SEC, a um, few different programs. Uh, when Bruce Pearl was coach there and Rick Barnes coached Tom Izzo when I covered Michigan State. Uh, and now Tom Crean uh, here at Georgia. So covered college basketball for a while covered college football for a while uh been a sports writer for a while so it kind of just kind of been around and now i work for um dog nation which is kind of a subsidy of the atlanta journal constitution um a lot of my stuff will be in the be in that but the dog nation website's pretty much all things georgia football georgia basketball we're down here at the uh silver bowl right now Obviously, Georgia's uh, still primarily a football school. Uh, Crane's doing what he can to change that. He's got good facilities to work with, but, you know, Georgia's a program that's only been in the NCAA tournament once in the last seven years or so. So this guy's work cut out for him in terms of trying to establish a program here and and uh, get the program back in the NCAA tournament. And a really difficult opening stretch of the SEC season. So... Uh, I think it's important he gets this last preseason win, um, give George a little momentum. They're seven and four right now. They just had a pretty nice win uh, at Georgia Tech. I covered last Saturday. Um, that was a big victory for the team. So, yeah, just trying to keep some momentum. Uh, uh, this uh, Saturday, I guess they play. Like I said, I'm in New Orleans. So the game, the game is actually Sunday. The the, uh, Sunday. the the bowl game, I believe, is Saturday for you guys. So, are you going to be? Are you bowl be game's Tuesday? Oh, it is okay. My bad. New Year's night. So yeah, that's you know they got to get another win. They go to eight and four, which would be a decent preseason. Um, you know they had Arizona State beat and gave up an eighteen point lead. That was a tough one. And now um, now UMass comes in. So I guess we'll find out what, what's next for uh, Georgia basketball and the Bulldogs here. So stepping back for a moment, um, just to give UMass fans a little bit of context, you know one of the, one of the things that we we try to emphasize on the show in terms of uh, kind of capturing the grandeur of, of collegiate athletics in the South, and, and, it, and it's sort of in comparison to, to UMass and, and our, our diehards who listen to the program. Um, you 
work for Dog Nation, which you explained is basically owned by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the main paper in this in the, in Atlanta. Is it, it how many writers or, or people work just exclusively for that subsidiary of the the major newspaper? Well, you know the Dog Nation site. It's it's kind of a Georgia coverage site. So, um, you know, there's two of us in Athens. There's uh, there's a daily podcast done by Brandon Adams out of the studio back in Atlanta. We've got a full time recruiting writer. We've got two producers. Uh, so probably um, you know plus I advertise probably about ten. So you got, t- yeah. So just to give people, I just think, I just think that's it's an for for UMass fans. I mean, that wouldn't be terribly surprising. I think for the Boston Globe covering the Red Sox or the Patriots, but I think in in you know to give you context, UMass, which is you know only twenty plus years removed from a Final Four, so not not a nothing program, but there's one full-time beat writer for the entire program, all papers combined. Um, we are a fan podcast, uh, you know, that goes about once a week. And so I just, I just think it's always, it's always fun for UMass fans to sort of, uh, you know, cause I, I've spent a decent amount of time in, in SEC country. I've been to the Grove at Old Miss and, and some other places. So I, I, I try to just convey what I've seen. I think UMass fans are getting it a little bit more with uh, our, our FBS football now and, and you know some of the buy games but it's just amazing i think to to contextualize it for our audience and and that's just one site that I, I know there's there's other sites as well right i mean there's probably what 100 150 people on the georgia beat full-time well i don't know about that but it, it's a completely different culture you know in the, in the northeast and even in the midwest your sports market is considerably more stratified um, you know, with all the professional sports teams, you know, you've got the NHL and the NBA and Major League Baseball, certainly the NFL, and, you know, colleges clearly take a back seat in the Northeast. We've seen that. Um, you know, whereas in the South, you know, college sports has, has been king largely because there weren't as many sports teams, professional sports teams in the South. Now, recently that's changed is you know, the Sun Belt has boomed, the schools have improved, the economies are stronger in many cases than the North. Um, you know, it's <laughs> things have changed a lot in the last 50 or 60 years. Um, you know, and, and there have been more professional sports teams, obviously, growing in the South. And yet and still, college football maintains its place as, as king in the South. And, you know, more so probably than, you know, the NFL. I guess it would be hard for you to imagine a a college team having a bigger following than the New England Patriots or the New York Giants, but uh, in the South, uh, I would say Georgia football is bigger than you know the Atlanta Falcons or the Carolina Panthers, and you know it has to do with the culture and it has to do with what college football has meant to the South, uh, you know, for the last fifty or sixty years, and um, you know now that the schools certainly Georgia's grown academically, where it's the thirteenth ranked public institution and more than holds its own with, with, you know, a lot of the schools uh, in the Northeast or in the Midwest. So uh, not just the uh, the Bubba's, not, not the stereotype that I think, you know, some people might still have. And you come down and realize you've got faster phone service and more Fortune 500 companies moving to the South because of the economy and and uh, other factors. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a growing place to be. It's a good place to be. And athletics are a big part of it. 
So, in, in that same vein, I think there's a tendency uh, um, for, for UMass fans to, in many ways, I think, overstate the quality of SEC basketball teams sometimes that we play because of the prominence in, in the media and, and just nationally of, of football programs. And so, you know, and, and we saw that last year where, where even a pretty good Georgia team with um, Mayton and, and some other guys came into Amherst and a first-year head coach at the time, Matt McCall, with a thin roster, uh, defeated the Dogs in a, in a pretty, you know, pretty, you know, it wasn't an easy win, but UMass played really well and, and kind of led wire to wire. So I think sometimes there's a tendency for us to uh, forget that we're dealing with basketball. Talk about the challenges, just in general, before we get into this year's roster, of kind of um, being uh, you know, at non-Kentucky or non-Florida SEC basketball team and sort of recruiting um, in the shadow of a football program. Obviously, that brings some benefits, I would imagine, in terms of resources, but also it's so clearly second fiddle in, in this time of year uh, in particular. Just talk talk about those dynamics for, for recruiting. Yeah, well, you know, the, the coaches, you know, that work around that or use that to their advantage are the ones that are successful. You know, I sat down with Tom Izzo a couple of weeks ago and talked about that. Certainly Michigan State's proven it can be basketball. The emphasis that the SEC schools are putting on basketball now it starts with, you know, the coaches that you hire and then it gets into the scheduling a little bit. You know, when you, you take a look at some of the coaches in the SEC now, I mean, Avery Johnson at Alabama, and certainly Bruce Pearl's a proven commodity. Uh, Crane, what he did at Indiana, and Marquette. Uh, Cal Perry, guy you guys know pretty well, him and Marcus King. Had, had him on the show, actually. That stuff that he's known for up there. Uh, ben Howland, you know, did some pretty great things at UCLA. Conzo Martin uh, has been an up-and-comer since his playing days at Purdue and, and had some success at Cal. And, uh, you know, Frank we're going to South Carolina and Rick Barnes did a lot at Texas so you know those are those are some Hall of Fame you know there's some some Hall of Fame names in that in that crop that I just mentioned and and we're starting to see the SEC schedule more aggressively and last year we saw a record number of SEC teams make the NCAA tournament so I, I think that you know to your point you know the SEC is a football conference primarily and when we talk about basketball blue bloods you know, most people think of Kentucky and Arkansas, and, and more recently Florida, and, and it's kind of hard to kind of hard to break in there. And um, you know, that's why you know Georgia scheduling a home and home with a, with a basketball school like UMass, I think has some value to it. And uh, certainly, you know, Crane needs to get this one. I mean, this would be another uh, big home win as he tries to build a team that, as I said, you know, strives for the NCAA tournament. Now, I, I don't know. If they're going to be ready to make that leap this year. I don't know that they have uh, the depth or if they're all bought into a system. It takes time for a coach to get a system going. Um, you know, in, in the SEC is tough. I mean, there are some tough games for them. I mean, you know, Auburn's a really good basketball team and Tennessee's a really good basketball team and Kentucky's a really good basketball team. And um, there's going to be some challenges for Crane uh, to make the NCAA tournament. I'm not sure he can do it this year. What has reception been in Athens um, toward Crane and just in terms of injecting energy into the program? Mark Fox had a pretty long run there, and, um, you know, obviously last year was kind of a make-or-break season for him. What, what's been the – how's the transition been, not only from a kind of player perspective, but how are folks down there 
just are they excited? Is there is there a sense that you know he's going to resurrect the program, or are people still sort of thinking about football right now? Well, people are definitely thinking about football like every day, every <laughs> day of the year. That <laughs> that doesn't go away. But I, I think there's a, a curiosity and some guarded optimism. You know, it's been good attendance. I know some of these attendance numbers are some of the best they've had in the last couple decades. You know, they did a uh, kind of a midnight madness thing that. You know, drew pretty well for them. I mean, they didn't they didn't get ten thousand, but they had over five thousand there, uh, which is good for Georgia. You know, they were one of the um, least attended teams in the SEC last year. I think they were second to last in attendance, average home attendance, and that's something that you know they're looking to improve. Um, so I, I think it's been good so far, though, based on what I've seen. Uh, I know the numbers have been way ahead of where they were under Mark Fox in terms of attendance. Now it's still early in the year and. You know, if Georgia were to lose three or four games in a row at the start of the SEC season, things could tail off quickly. In fact, uh, Crane was talking to us after the Georgia Tech win and and was saying, you know, that uh, if, if you just look strictly on computer projections, they're supposed to start the SEC season 0-10. And so, uh, you know, his team certainly has some challenges left as far as where they're predicted to finish and, and what they've got to play against to open the season. So... Uh, but I think the reception has been good. I think people are aware that Tom has had success, you know, at Marquette there with Dwayne Wade in the Final Four and, and you know, resurrecting Indiana to some extent, getting the Hoosiers back ranked uh, number one for 10 weeks and, and um, you know, did some really good things there after taking over some, under some very adverse circumstances with the program on probation. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's a proven commodity in many respects. Um, you know, but Georgia basketball has never been real good. I mean, it's never really, uh, you know, you talk about Dominique Wilkins and, you know, who else, you know, really. So I, I guess uh, I think of Jim Herrick, those that brief little run after, you know, he was, I guess it was post UCLA, but he didn't ever really get it going there. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ran into some trouble and, you know, Tubby Smith obviously had some success, but, uh, but yeah, not, not a program with a lot to hang its head on. It's got nice facilities, though, and as I said, it's it's got a great campus. The location is is convenient to Atlanta, about uh, about an hour and a half, hour and fifteen minutes away from Atlanta. So there's a good recruiting base there as well, and they've got some pretty good players this year. So uh, you know, I, I think there's reasons for guarded optimism. I, I'm skeptical. So they lost Deontay Maiden from last year. If I if I recall correctly, they, they lost a lot of guys from last year's team, and it's a pretty pretty young roster. Um, what I know there's a lot of length on this Georgia team. What what what's the style of play that Crane has been been deploying thus far, and and kind of who are some guys that UMass fans should uh, look out for? Yeah, you know, he likes he likes to go up tempo. That's big with him, and he's really big on spacing. I know all coaches are, but that's you know some coaches emphasize some things more than others. And Crane talks about spacing and, and tempo, uh, really big on, on trying to improve the shots. Um, you know, they'll shoot the three from a little further out than most teams. Um, not you know a lot of individual um, you know drives to the basket. You know the, the ball movement's important, but uh, the assists aren't. If that makes sense. They've got a guy named Nicholas Claxton that leads the SEC in rebounding and block shots. And, you know, he could develop into an NBA player. He's about 6'11", um, you know, really lean, runs the floor, can handle the ball. Um, 
you know, Crane's turned him into a little bit of a stretch for it. Can shoot the three. Uh, he's improved in that area. Uh, decent free throw shooter as well. Um, so when he's on his game, you know, they're pretty good. He's had five double-doubles this year. And they've got a power forward named Brayshawn Hammonds. He leads the team in scoring about 15 points a game. Uh, strong rebounder, really good off the dribble. Another guy that can shoot the three. And then they have a, a legitimate uh, three-point shooter in Tyree Crump. You know, we shoot 41% from three, and he's also averaging double digits. So uh, Georgia is a longer team. Um, you know, they like to go up tempo, and, and, they, and they're playing a lot of guys so far. They're playing, you know, pretty deep benches. You know, Crane really wants to give everybody an opportunity to show what they can do. Kind of still searching for his, you know, comp, different combinations and working on developing depth. Claxton, um, just a sophomore. So has he kind of... I mean, it seemed like Mayton last year was such the dominant presence for them and really kind of the all-everything forward that they relied upon. Has he, has Claxton kind of filled a lot of that, that void and, and, and gotten a lot of those touches, or have they been spread around um, to, to all of the guys that you alluded to? You know, I've asked the guys that after the last game, and they, you know, and I said pretty much what you just asked. I mean, do you feel like you filled his shoes? Do you feel like, you know, they, they insist that he still missed greatly. I mean, you're right. I mean, he was a guy that they all went to, they all looked to. I mean, he's, he's their guy. He's still their hero. You know, it's, it's strange because it's like, you know, you guys look better than you did last year with him, but you know, it, it's almost like they don't realize that yet. I, I don't think I'd say it's to the point where Claxton or Hammonds is a go-to guy. I think this team is still, Evolving and figuring out who they are. Uh, there's an innocence about them, I guess you could say. I don't even think they realize what their potential is yet, um, and that and that could be a really good thing, you know, because you, you don't have anybody thinking they're supposed to get the ball or thinking they're supposed to get the shot. Uh, you know, Crane encourages the open guy to shoot it. Uh, it. It's not like there's this distinct shot hierarchy. Certainly not yet. Um, you know, this team's still got to shake out to some extent, and so. Uh, I wouldn't say that he's been replaced, but I don't think he's missed as much as maybe even the Georgia players might think that he is. So Claxton, Crump, and the third guy you alluded to was was Hammonds, you said? Yeah. All three of those guys uh, uh, were there last year. Are there any um, Crean recruits that that are already contributing or transfers or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, Ty Fagan, you know, he's a freshman, and, you know, he's a nice guard. But as I said, I mean, there's so many guys that play. They go so deep on the bench. Um, you know, really, you know, the main guys are those three that I mentioned, you know, particularly Claxton and what he's able He alters shots around the rim. Um, you know, his ability to run the floor, you just don't see many 6'11 guys that can get up and down the floor with the ball in their hands. And, and he's really just starting to kind of, you know, scratch the surface. I mean, this is a guy who could develop into, you know, something really special. Um, now, there's a lot of work between, you know, where he's at right now and, and, and being Kevin Durant. But, you know, anytime you talk about a 6'11 guy with three-point range that can handle the ball and, and get up and down the floor, I mean, that's that's the model. And, you know, I, I think Nicholas has got a long way to go. Um, you know, before he's in that category. But when you look at the frame and you look at the skill set, you, you say you say to yourself, maybe that's the ceiling. That's what's different. That's who's going to jump out at you. Um, that's the guy you're going to look at and say, boy, it sure would be great if 33's in foul trouble. 
Um, and, and you know what? He was against Georgia Tech, and it didn't matter. It's like um, he picked up two fouls in the first three minutes and sat all but, I think, six or seven minutes of the first half. And just when he's back on the floor, it changes how teams defend Georgia. And then I think he scored all of his points, all 13 of his points, in like the last seven or eight minutes. He had 13 points and 13 rebounds. Um, and six block shots and two steals and I think six assists. I mean, he just, he's kind of doing it all now. So it'll be interesting to see how UMass defends him. I'm sure they're going to go at him and try and get him in foul trouble. Yeah, and Claxton, for, for our listeners, uh, you know, he, he both his parents, I understand, went to Georgia and his father was... Um, played at Georgia in the mid-90s and was drafted by, uh, I think, the Suns and maybe actually played briefly with the Celtics. Um, yeah. yeah, briefly with the Celtics during the very year that UMass made the Final Four and the Celtics were awful, uh, apropos of nothing. But um, So, yeah, he, he's going to be really tough for UMass to guard, in fact, because UMass kind of goes... Their, their current center is 6'11", 310 and that's generous he might be closer to 330 so i think that the, the that claxon's ability to um kind of stretch the floor could could be a huge challenge for umass um who's who, who it should be noted i don't know if you you know dejiri baptiste um from vanderbilt uh, actually joins UMass in this game and will play for the first time at UMass this year. He graduated from Vanderbilt but was not eligible until the end of the first semester. Um, but I don't expect him to play a ton. He's kind of a 6'11", 240 guy who probably would draw Claxton a lot, but I think just because it's his first game, uh, that'll be a really tough matchup for UMass. Where does Georgia... Um, I mean, obviously their, their youth and relative inexperience is, is, an, is an issue, but... Where are, are they vulnerable in, in terms of? I mean, they, they in terms of uh, weaknesses. You know, I think their point guard play is questionable. You know, I think uh, a team that can play tight defense or press um, could give them problems. A good pressing, trapping team, uh, a good man team, a, a team that could really um, you know pressure the ball. I think could give Georgia trouble. Um, you know, I, I'd say a, a good um, a good motion offense could bother them. I know that you know that they like they, they go with three bigs, but I do think they're susceptible uh, to a three guard lineup that moves the ball well and plays a motion offense. And um, a team that can shoot the three would be another thing. So I, those are the things, though, to me that you know are still drawbacks from Georgia. I, I just I don't think their point guard plays good enough to make the NCAA tournament. Or to beat a good, you know, pressure defense. It's funny because UMass. I mean, their strengths are are their guard play, their outside shooting, and their ability to to throw three three good guards on the floor, particularly when they're hot. Um, so, and and I think with the emergence of Baptiste now, who's who can run the floor, you're going to see UMass really almost overnight. Maybe not in this game, but start a conference season, go to go to a much more press centric defense. So. It'll be a fun one just from a, whoever can impose their tempo um, will will win, frankly. I mean, this is this, these are two these it's a very much contrast in styles. Um, UMass will pressure the ball, but is very weak at defending the interior. So it, it's it's really going to be a matter of who imposes their will. And, and as we speak, I'm just thinking out loud here. I, I actually see it being kind of either team will will win by 10 plus even though i suspect the line will be at like six seven eight maybe um so i'm i'm, I'm looking forward to it can we get a prediction from you 
Yeah, you know, I see both teams have played Temple, and uh, Georgia lost by four, and uh, and UMass lost by two at Temple. So that's interesting. They've already got a common opponent. You know, patience won't mean much for me at this point. Again, I mean, Georgia, you know, each time I've seen them, they've looked a little different. Um, you know, I, I would favor them to win at home. They've been really good at home this year. They're riding a lot of momentum. I don't know a lot about UMass, but... You know, looking at their schedule, I see they've played some close games. I think that that could certainly help them if they can keep it close. If they can stay within five, you know, in the last two minutes, certainly uh, I would give them an edge. But I just, right now, the way Georgia's playing, I, I think I would pick Georgia to win this game. You mentioned the line of about six. That sounds about right. Um, you know, but nothing would surprise me, I'll tell you that. College basketball, you know, from one week to the next, uh, you know, as, as much as we like to look at the numbers and and uh, predict, you know, these are kids. And they're coming back from Christmas. And I don't know who, who ate too much turkey and too much peach cobbler and, and who's going to have a hard time getting up and down the court or who broke up with their girlfriend or what classes they're getting ready to start that they're freaking out about. You know, they're still 18 to 21 years old. And at this stage of the season, maybe not as locked in as they were at the beginning or what we'll see by mid-January when they start to get into the throes of the conference schedule. So this is a particularly difficult time of year to know what's going on with with uh, young players in college athletics, not just in basketball, but in bowl games too. And kind of cracks me up when people, you know, look at the bowl games and go, oh, look at that program, they did this. And, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's really like there's three seasons. I mean, teams play their regular seasons in football. The Bulls are kind of their own season because there's so much going on with guys coming and going out of football programs. Uh, and then certainly, uh, you know, spring football is its own animal. But college basketball, kind of the same way. You kind of get that preseason, you know, which we're kind of in the, getting towards the end of right now. And then we got the conference stretch and then certainly, uh, you know, tournament time. But this end of the preseason is when I've seen the most upsets and the craziest things happen because when kids leave campus for a few days on Christmas break, there's no telling what gets into their head or what distractions they might bring back with them for a few days before they get dialed in again. It's it's good to hear you saying this because I think UMass fans, I mean, like all fans, tend to think that, and you've been around for a while, you know, they they tend to think that these problems are unique to our own our program, and I and I, I as as this this UMass team this year, even by the standards of collegiate athletics, has been especially inconsistent. It's a team that went on the road and came back from twenty down to beat a really good Providence team in dramatic fashion, and that lost to Howard at home. So it's um, it's been, you know, as is common, I think, also in rebuilds for, for coaches. Matt McCall, who's a Southern guy, a, a former um, Billy Donovan assistant uh, at Florida for many years and a former manager there, um, you know, in his second year. It, it's it's just something that I think it's important that to hear from, a, from an SEC and longtime reporter because, uh, UMass fans tend to tend to forget that what we're seeing right now and at this time of year in particular is not at all unique. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just totally true what you said in terms of guys not being locked in after the break. So I am very curious. One last thing is there is a perception among, I think, Atlantic 10 fans in general and, and folks who are kind of at the upper echelons of the mid-major world that... When you go down and play a team um, in the SEC or, or, or in a power conference, that there's a tendency 
for there to be some real home cooking from the officiating crew. Um, you know, and I obviously think that's undergirded with a little bit of a conspiratorial, you know, conspiratorial tone, but it does anecdotally feel, uh, you know, a little bit as if that's the case. This is a fan podcast, after all. Uh, we try to be relatively impartial. But do you think that um, you've experienced, you've, you've noticed that? I mean, where, where you know, teams from big-time conferences get get some calls and in, in close ones against kind of um, mid-major opponents? You mean like Duke? Well, Duke's, you know, Duke's Duke, but... but <laughs> well, no, but the point is, you know, one team is always going to be perceived better than the other. And, you know, I think we would say that in all athletics, whether we're talking about college sports or the NBA or LeBron James or whomever, uh, you know, as long as you've got that human element. And, you know, one thing about basketball is, man, there's a lot of room for interpretation and subjectivity. And I do think, you know, certain players probably certain coaches uh you know I, I don't see tom crane with that element at this point i know when they played georgia tech saturday i thought there were four or five calls that went against georgia uh you know it's not like georgia. but that was at tech right yeah but still i mean it's an sec team and an acc team and a nationally televised game i mean it's not like it's not like georgia is the big kid on the block and in fact you could argue that umass you know, has a better basketball image than Georgia. In fact, I would argue that. You know, if I were going to talk about basketball schools, I think our discussion could go a lot longer and deeper about UMass's tradition. Maybe Georgia should be worried about not getting the calls against a program like UMass. And, you know, they've been to a Final Four not too long ago, as you pointed out, with Cal. And, um, you know, a pretty consistent winner. You know, when you think about UMass, that's kind of what you think about it. It hasn't been so consistent since that Cali. I I wish I could tell you otherwise. We've been to two tournaments since he left, 98 and uh, 2014, so it's been a bit of a dry spell, but there's... George has been to about two uh, since the new millennium. Yeah. Springfield, the birth of college basketball. Yeah, no, it's 20 minutes from campus. I mean, it's, it's... you know, it's it's been uh, a rocky couple decades, but there is still always kind of this uh, latent hope that and and opt, I wouldn't call it an optimism, but you know, I think right now McCall is is a, is a really talented young coach, and despite the somewhat rocky seven and five start, there there is a enthusiasm surrounding the program and some really good transfers, a few SEC guys and. Um, actually, a lot of Southern guys on the roster, but well, you look at you know what you got to look at in college basketball. You know the good news about college basketball is the regular season really doesn't matter. It's not like you know college football. You lose two games. You know Georgia loses a game at LSU this year in October, and oh my gosh, now that's why Oklahoma's better. I mean, it's college basketball. You know you can lose the worst team in your league and still you know make a run at the Final Four. Um, you know, it, which some people love that. They love March Madness. It's all about just finding a way to get in the big dance. But what, what you look for is you look for the ceiling. You know, so many teams that look good early in the year and you say, man, they look so good. And, you know, back in November, December, and January, what happened? Well, they hit their peak. You know, they were playing their best. And, you know, they don't get any better. You know, they, whereas different teams peak at different times. You know, you're telling me this UMass team came from 20 down to beat Providence. I mean, that tells me this team's got a pretty high ceiling. And, you know, when they get it together, they can be pretty good. Now, what that takes is chemistry. You know, the, you know, as far as, you know, how choreographed basketball has to be, it really requires guys being on the same page. And it really requires guys liking each other. 
they got to like each other enough to want to spend two or three hours, uh, maybe an hour and a half, two hours a day extra in the gym. I remember, you know, when the ten, when I covered Tennessee and those Bruce Pro teams, they had a guy named Chris Lofton, and you may not remember him, but he, he was the SEC's all-time leading three-point shooter. He was great. Yeah, it didn't look very big. I would remember he would, uh, I would stay after practice and write. Chris would stay there and shoot, 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 and the team manager would come and say, look, you got to leave, we're turning out the lights. And they would literally kick him out of the building, and I'd say, well, I guess you're going back to your dorm. He'd say, nope, I'm going to the intramural facility. you got to have a guy like that, and when your best player is your hardest worker, you got a chance. So I don't know the personality of UMass. I don't know if you've got that sort of catalyst, but what it's going to take is a coach that can build a roster of guys that like each other enough and care about each other enough that they're all willing to put the extra time in. I mean, let's face it, these student-athletes have a lot of different things on their plate between having to go to class, having to manage their lives, and, and, and trying to have a bit of a social life, too. Now, how much they invest in their basketball versus how much they invest, you know, in their friends or their girlfriend or the movies or going to the city varies from one campus to another. But ultimately, the teams that invest the most are going to get the most out of it, and that's why that coach is so important because he's got to find those like-minded guys, A, and then B, he's got to motivate them where they want to invest that kind of time and they want to be that kind of program and they want to be the difference makers that puts UMass back on the map. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen with one win. It happens over the course of a season. So, you know, my advice would be look look to see if you've got that sort of catalyst on the basketball team. And, uh, and appreciate it when the team does have those big wins because everybody's on scholarship, man. You know, as much as UMass wants and needs this win at Georgia, Georgia's trying to reestablish themselves and, and prove themselves worthy to their home crowd. So everybody's got something at stake. Not everybody can win. Like I said, I just know when I think about UMass, I think about college basketball. And, you know, as a college writer, if I still think that, then there's a good chance a lot of people have that perception, and that's something that UMass should really try to build on. Appreciate you saying that. Before we go, it just reminded me, as since UMass played, and actually the reason this, this whole series is taking place, and Mark Fox was apoplectic about it last year, wouldn't even, I don't know if you remember, he wouldn't show up for the postgame presser um, because he was so mad that his AD scheduled this game at UMass, and the only reason the game was scheduled at UMass and it got a home-and-home, home, which is very rare, for an A-10 team to get was because uh, the buy game that UMass got in football, um, and that was part of the deal. And um, UMass athletic director is actually has Atlanta ties. He was an associate AD at Georgia Tech. Um, but in that game this year in football, which was a, a blowout, obviously, I, w- I wanted to get your take, um, <laughs> just a fun one before we go. Andy Isabella. UMass's wow. wide receiver. Was he the best wide, rec- wide receiver you saw this year? Wow. You know, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, arguably, he was certainly among the most productive. You know, Georgia didn't put their best. Their best corner is a guy named Andre Baker, who just recently announced today he's not playing in the game. But they put him on marquee receivers, and, and he'd done a pretty good job shutting him down. They didn't do that with Isabella, though. They didn't, they didn't put him on him, and... You know, they, they just tried to cover him like another guy, and you saw what he did. I mean, he absolutely torched a, a Georgia secondary that's arguably the best in the country. If you go back and look, they really kept Alabama's talented receiving core to rep. So, yeah, I mean, uh, this guy looks like somebody's going to be playing in the NFL to me. And, you know, we didn't expect that because we'd seen a lot of receivers had success, and Georgia had managed to shut him down. 
Um, a couple of the SEC's leading receivers did you know virtually nothing against Georgia, but you know Isabella was he was running free all day, and they were finding him. And um, you know UMass scored a lot of points on a pretty good Georgia defense. And you know as much as Georgia would like to chalk that up to overlooking or not being ready, that that's just not the case. You know, I thought, you know, UMass pass game was real and, and Isabella, Isabella was real. And, uh, yeah, this strikes me as a guy that, that's going to play in the league and, um, you know, certainly, you know, represented UMass well. I know they just fired their coach and, and they're going to be going in another direction. But, uh, again, it, it comes down to, uh, you know, an investment. And, you know, whereas in basketball, I talked about players investing their time. I would say in football, they got to maybe invest in some football facilities. And, uh, you know, do what they can to differentiate themselves. Otherwise, you know, why, why am I going to UMass to play football? Why wouldn't I, you know, go somewhere else in the Northeast? Like, uh, you know, Syracuse or, uh, BC or or Maryland now, you know, there's yeah. other programs that play in bigger conferences with better facilities. So it's a, it's a tough gig. It's tough to be UMass in football, but I think in basketball, they've got a chance to still be really special. All right, I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and taking some time, and uh, good luck down there at the bowl game. And uh, will you be covering the game on uh, Sunday? For Yeah, good, good luck for me is making deadline and spelling everybody's name right, getting score right in first edition. All right, best of luck, man. Entertaining game to write about, you know. That's, you know people always ask, who, you know, who, what does a sports writer root for? You root for a good storyline. You root for uh, a good deadline. You root for clean copy. And ability to do your job and, and make your flight on time the next day and, and have a good breakfast or something. I mean, it's a it's a job. You know, I know it's a you know some some trips are better than others. Certainly, New Orleans is an interesting city. Uh, I'll try and see some of that and eat some different kinds of food. But for the most part, I'm I'm just going to work and, and, and writing stories on uh, Georgia football, looking for different angles. Uh, that people are going to want to read and and tonight you know sharing a little time and different ideas with you and you know, I appreciate you guys reaching out and, and the perspective you know with me uh, on UMass where, you know I wish I could be back there covering that basketball game. I can't be two places at once but I'll I'll be watching it uh, online I'll be curious to see how it shakes out what Crane does because uh, you know this is the kind of game he's got to win to build a program and it's and it's not going to be a pushover. Tell us where folks can find you on Twitter and elsewhere. Twitter, I'm, uh, on Twitter, I'm at MikeGriffith32. It's my Twitter handle. And uh, the Dog Nation website is just dognation.com. And, you know, any, any football or basketball you want to read about Georgia, like I said, you, you know how we've got it plastered all over there. we got a Facebook web page. It's, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people like that as well, the Dog Nation Facebook page. Um but probably best bet follow me on Twitter at Mike Griffith 32 I like to weigh in on some things from time to time that don't necessarily involve George but you know run the bounds of college athletics alright Mike thanks so much alright you have a good evening thank you take it easy Time for Sam the Mailman, your UMass Athletics mailbag updates. What are your expectations for next year, 2019-2020? Assuming everyone of importance comes back, and he mentions Pip, Laurent, Cobb, Pierre, etc., are they a March Madness caliber team? Noting, parenthetically, that 
by the way, I'm not done with this season or anything. Just genuinely curious about our potential next year. So I've thought about this a lot because on paper with McCall, from really from the day he came in, you kind of, and, and with most rebuilds, as you're seeing with Greg Carville and the hockey team, it's a three-year deal, I, I think, in, in hoops. I don't know enough about football or hockey really to comment with any authority, but I think minimum three-year deal with hoops. Sometimes you see a turnaround earlier in, in, in with programs, I think, that were in a little bit of a better spot than what I do think next year, it's basically, there's almost no excuse for not going to the tournament. And I know that's a really, maybe not going through it. There's basically no excuse for not going top four in the A-10. And given that they're going to have, I think, a pretty good non-conference schedule next year, certainly with those games at Mohegan Sun, I think there's some others, they're going to have opportunities and and. And with a senior-laden roster, particularly in the non-conference, I think you have a lot of opportunities to steal some games against maybe you know slightly more talented non-conference foes because because of that experience. That's how you do it. At the same time, you know, there's that part of me that's like, mm, you know, we're kind of struggling and like we're we got a lot of experience now. <laughs> but I do think can, you know you have to put this in context. They've only played twelve games with one another. By the start of next year, by the end of next year, they'll have played 60, right? So you basically have a core of, you know, Pierre as a junior, Pip as a senior, a fifth-year senior, um, Cobb as a fifth-year senior. Those are three really good scoring guards, plus DeGiri Baptiste, who will be a fifth-year senior, basically. Um, And... At, at, who, who plays in McCall's system, I think, in a more, in many ways, more prototypical way that for what McCall wants to do than Holloway does. And and by that point, I think we'll be better than where Holloway is. And then Laurent as a fifth-year senior. That's a loaded starting lineup. Not to mention the biggest jump you typically see in the, at the mid-major level is freshman to sophomore year. And the three freshmen this year, I think, are all going to be really solid next year. And you have an emergent Keon Clairgo who's been playing really well of late. So, right there, you're nine deep, and you have a solid freshman class coming in. You don't even need those guys to do anything if, you, if you're nine deep with, with the nine I just mentioned. That being said, these are strange times in college basketball, and fifth-year transfers are increasingly the norm. Look, Luan's gonna is on is on track, I believe, to graduate. As is Curtis Cobb, so one of those guys could be gone. Um, that changes things a lot, particularly if it's Pip. Even without Pip, there's a maniacal part of me, a crazy part of me, that thinks, particularly if they could bring in a somewhat experienced point guard, that. Claire Go and Trey Wood are both going to be pretty solid at the one next year. That this team could still be really good without Pip. They won't be nearly what they would be with him. Well, you know, so, but, but yeah, I think they could be fantastic. I really do. But again, as we're learning this year, you know, it's a roundabout way of getting there, but as we're learning this year, it is so much. 
effort stuff really fucking matters. I, I don't know how to emphasize it enough. I, I just think it really matters. And for a mid-major team to become sort of high-major good, you gotta get that shit really ironed out solid because the the margin for error is so low. And particularly with what we're seeing with with a weak Atlantic Ten this year, and who knows what it should be better next year. But even so, um, getting to the NCAA tournament's really hard. So that's where I'm at with that. Um, Mass Attack 05, Josh says, UMass Hockey is contending for a national title. Football surrounded by enthusiasm. Cautious optimism for basketball entering conference play. Aliens turn sky blue in New York. Coincidence or end of days. Look, much as there would be uh, the easy way to, to approach this would be to suggest that the alien invasion of New York, which I experienced tonight, uh, I guess it was actually just like a transformer that got blown in Queens, but it was genuinely the wildest shit I've ever experienced. Like I was just looking at the sky, completely light and like shaking and flickering. Thought I was like, you know, on an edible. I mean, it was just bizarro world. Um, <clears throat> I do not think there is a connection between that and the end of days. I think the reality is UMass Hockey was always a sleeping giant. Let's go one by one. UMass Hockey was always a sleeping giant. It required, I think, a transformative coach in Greg Carville. But I believe that hockey is the one program at UMass most equipped, both financially and sort of culturally, um, to sustain success. If, if Greg Carville were to leave tomorrow, I think that it's just about now making that next really solid hire. And maybe it's not a perennial, well, not that this is a perennial because it's the first time they've done it, but not that it's necessarily a top five team, but I think you can be top 20. What is there, 70 hockey programs? You're the flagship university of one of the two or three big hockey states. And as I've said before, I think that not being in Boston, where there are, what, Northeastern, Harvard, BC, BU, Bentley, there's like five five college hockey programs, like six maybe, that's actually a benefit. I think I think being in the maybe nicest other than maybe BU arena in the state, a nice practice facility away from Boston, kind of its own unique thing, I just think what UMass hockey has already is so unique. When you and I, I think it'd be really interesting, by the way, just to go off on a little tangent, to see what this team does in Boston this year in front of UMass friendly crowds in Boston. Because I think that's another benefit they have. You're, you're dealing with what Northeastern BCBU minimum five six games in Boston every year minimum plus. Merrimack, you know, uh, Holy Cross. I mean, you you're probably get what? I mean, probably close to 10 games in the eastern part of the state every year. Huge built-in advantage for a program um, with fan base, fan base in many ways that's not terribly close to, to campus itself. So um, that program should be awesome 
if you can you know make the right hires because I think now the culture has changed and now it's just that next hire whenever that comes. I hope Carvel is there for 25 years, but if he's not, I think they're on the path to success. It doesn't require the same financial commitment that other sports do to compete at a high level and UMass is able to to make it, I believe. So then with football, I am thrilled and I mentioned on Twitter like I've never felt the buzz I felt today in particular uh, I'm referring to today as in Thursday December 27th the show will probably pop on uh, I guess Friday um, I've never been more excited than I was today the the, the hiring of this defense the new defensive coordinator who is just a beloved recruiter at Maryland you just I mean you read about the guys he brought in there and, and just can't overstate it. And, and Walt Bell, too. I mean, there's just four-star recruits all around the country being like, UMass? 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 Like, that's awesome. I mean, you can't overstate that. Even if those guys don't come, right? Just having that conversation going on, you know, on Twitter, and these kids look, and it, it, it's just it's just a really good thing. From uh, I, I don't know if it'll break through with the casual Western Mass or Massachusetts sports fan, just because the culture of paying attention to collegiate recruiting isn't isn't what it is in, frankly, most other parts of the country. So I'm, I'm not sure it will matter in that regard. But I, I think it is it's incredibly beneficial, just from a, a kind of branded branding perspective in terms of like there being that buzz and it just kind of existing in the ether. And eventually, you know, you'll get some commitments that I think will really surprise people. That being said, I have to temper it somewhat because. And I was talking in advance of the show about this with a friend of the show, J.P. Warner, at J.P. Warner, who hosted a show once, a Michigan guy who knows a lot about college recruiting. I tried to get Zach Gisgott on tonight, by the way, friend of the show, Zach Gisgott, but he could not, he did not respond. I, I admittedly asked him like five minutes before, and then our Georgia guest came through. But anyway, <clears throat> what Jack was mentioning was I, was, I was, I raised the question to him. If you're a UMass, would you rather have incredibly dynamic recruiters, young, exciting recruiters who can get guys kind of above the UMass level? Or would you rather have incredible developers of talent and get guys maybe even slightly below the UMass level? So right now, it's kind of like, what's the ceiling right now? It's like we're poaching kids who maybe we're going to go to Rutgers, which is great. Rutgers is a Big Ten program, but not a very good one. Kids who are going to go to Buffalo, which is great. They're above us. They're, they're, they won like eight or nine games in the MAC. But again, not exactly um, world beaters. Or would you rather have guys who are maybe going to go to, uh, I don't know, Ball State or even like a high FBS type or FCS type school, but who would be developed so well that they'd turn into really solid kind of FCS players. <clears throat> and I don't really have an answer. I think there are benefits to both, but I didn't get the sense under Whipple, particularly in the last couple of years, that those classes were dogged by the lack of talent. I thought it was, we were out-schemed, out-prepared, and out-cultured. And I'm not saying for one second that Walt Bell um, and and this new defensive coordinator from Maryland, whose name is 
It's like a long, it's like three names, but I think Raheem is the last one. I'm not saying that those guys and their staff can't do both, that they can't both recruit and develop and scheme in-game. But we just don't know what they can do yet from a... Raheem has never been a coordinator. Um, Bell has never been a head coach. Bell has said in many ways that he doesn't necessarily want to be calling the plays. So there's there's a lot of question marks remaining with respect to... um, what is this team going to look like beyond just who they're going to bring in personnel-wise? And I am through the roof excited about the buzz around the program and the, 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 their approach to, to recruiting and just the, the breath of fresh air and the, the eager, eagerness for an opportunity for these younger, these younger guys. But... We don't, we don't know what they can do on the field yet. So I'm tempering my enthusiasm a little bit with just the recognition that, like, you know, once the whistle is blown, like, it's about those 60 minutes and whatever you did in the offseason to get a guy who was projected as, you know, somebody who could have been a second stringer at Minnesota or whatever and now is, is a starter at UMass, like... You know, look at Isabella, right? Like, he, he had one offer, and he turned himself into, in all likelihood, a second-round pick. So I, I just think there's a lot of question marks with respect to what does that mean for UMass to have two great recruiters? Because it's not like basketball where you get a Steph Curry or something, and all of a sudden you go from being, like, you know, a random mid-major to... Um, an elite eight team because you have a guy scoring 30 plus a night, right? Like it's not like that in football. And, and if it is like, great, I, I would, I am eager to see um, the, the four star, you know, underlooked, uh, you know, um, quarterback that, you know, like the Josh Allen type, if you can get that, then like, obviously that's exceptional, but I'm just, you know, excited. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just, a little bit um, kind of wait wait and see approach. I don't even know if that answered your question. I was going on at length because we didn't have any questions and I was kind of trying to extend the show. But, I really um, but yeah, cautious optimism you said. No, it's not the ending. Um, McKinney. It's all words coming in here. Pros and cons of what we heard so far about that. Well, that actually kind of just covered it. Um, yeah, the are that some guys who can absolutely recruit. I mean, proven, solid recruiters with a track record. You look at, you know, what's going on right now, and like Scott Van Pelt of ESPN and um, the kid Caleb Presley at Barstool. I mean, like, fun, engaging personalities in the sort of sports commentariat are raving about UMass football all of a sudden. And just that is exciting. And, and I don't think you can overstate the significance of that from a kind of branding and marketing perspective, particularly at a place like UMass, where I think there is this, I think there is a built-in uh, number of people who, who get sports, right? Like people like sports, but they're waiting for those kind of, hate the term influencer, but influencers to, to kind of 
sign off on this on on this project to to a degree. They're not waiting for it. They don't even know they're waiting for it. But it can't hurt when they see it. And so I'm thrilled about that. Um, there's the guy who's Duggan, Dan Duggan, I believe is his name, um, who was defensive coordinator at one point um, at Southern Miss and has been a longtime linebackers coach. It sounds in many ways like he and Raheem are going to be um, co-coordinators a bit. So that's good because Raheem doesn't have That seems like a good hire, but I don't know the the, the college uh, football coaching world terribly well, and I, I just can't speak to that uh, in, in with the substance I'd like to. There's another guy who I think is the offensive coordinator at San Diego at San Diego, which is an FCS school. I like hires like that. It's they're kind of weird and outside the box, and I feel like those guys are experimenters and do interesting things and. That excites me. So I, that was another hire that I was intrigued by. And then forget what he'll be coaching, but Jason Tudrin, um, a Western Mass legend in the early 90s when I was a kid who was a quarterback at Northampton High School and then a safety at UMass, um, I think during the Rini and Golia years when I was really just first starting to watch UMass football. I mean, I have very early memories of him. I guess he was uh, on the staff at UNC. So that's good to have Western Mass ties. His dad was a big time high school coach in the area and then um later was a coach in like naples florida so some really nice um hires so far by all accounts but you know at the end of the day it's like can you win football games and how long is it going to take for these recruits you're bringing in to to make a difference on the field i mean strength and physicality and red shirting and all that all those dynamics it just remains to be seen i think the schedule next year is favorable and 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 you know we can be competitive, but it's a big difference from being com- between being competitive and and being a consistent winner. So I'm looking forward to it. Do we have any others? It appears as if we do not. So thanks for uh, for the stalwarts who uh, contributed tonight, and uh, that'll do it. See you all after the Georgia game. Go Nuts.